Our reading this morning is going to be taken from Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 29. The narrow and the wide gates. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for the false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognise them. Do people pick grapes from the thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognise them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears the words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as, the, as, the teacher, as their teachers of the law. Uh, 20 years ago, I went on a holiday that was free. There is a connection in my life to what is free and what we do, but more of that another time. And I never knock a freebie. So nearly 20 years ago, uh, my father-in-law was doing a busman's holiday to Jersey. He was there preaching for his supper, and I sort of grabbed his coattails. And so Joe and I went on holiday with my mother-in-law and father-in-law, and that's where the adventures began. Uh, there was a sadness in the family of the home in which we were staying, which meant that after about four days, we, we had to move on. The family needed to come back to their home, and we had nowhere to stay, and 10 days still to go on our holiday. And very kindly, another lady in the church that uh, my father-in-law was serving, John, uh, offered to take us in. And that's where the adventure began. It was a Faulty Towers-esque home and experience. We walked into the home, I can remember it very, very clearly, and we walked into the kitchen that was uh, kind of dust-covered and chaotic and busy, but cosy at the same time. Um, and as I turned round, um, there was a big case, and one of these uh, pets was in the case. <laughs> there was a glass case in this kitchen that was cosy, to the point of being able to feel the breath of the person you shared breakfast with, um, but it wasn't just their breath you could feel what you were fascinated upon was the boa constrictor. That was the family pet. It was in a cage that was uh, 10 foot high by about 2 foot deep by about 4 foot wide. It was, it was cosy. 
in the kitchen and it was cosy in the cage because the boa constrictor was an uh, animal of substance. And uh, once a week, the uh, animal of substance, the boa constrictor, would be fed not with pellets but with live, well, they were live at the time, uh, live animals such as mice and other such uh, vermin, shall we say, unless you're a mouse lover, excuse me. There is something quite impressive about this animal, so that uh, food that you were eating on your plate uh, wasn't as attractive anymore. You were just fascinated with uh, your mind's eye and with your eyes, is the animal going to stay in the cage? How thick is that glass? When was it last fed? Do I look like I could be eaten? Things like that were crossing your mind in an irregular fashion uh, until the, uh, the man of the house, the son of the house, would come down and put you at ease. And there was nothing impressive or awe-inspiring about the household pet. It's, it's just there. It's my pet. I don't remember its name. The trouble with the Sermon on the Mount is that it can become very, very familiar to us. We said at the start of the year, it's, uh, if correctly read and understood, it should feel like an avalanche on your chest. The familiar words that you re have read, turn the other cheek, uh, do to others what you would have them do to you, uh, love your neighbour. Those are some of the most familiar words in the English language, and yet they can become snake-like. It's just a snake. It's, it's just normal. It's just what Jesus said. It's these familiar words in a familiar book from the lips of a historical person called Jesus. They, they can be throwaway. They can be casual. But actually, the, the end of the Sermon of the Mount that we're looking at today is an entirety should shock us as if you're walking into a kitchen and you see a boa constrictor. These are not normal words from a normal historical person. They're not the words of Shakespeare or Napoleon, Joan of Arc, Margaret Thatcher, words that are written down in antiquity or history. These are the words of the king of the universe. These are the words of Jesus, and they should be weighty. I hope they have been. One of the signs that you have listened carefully over these weeks and months is if you pass the test of verse 28. In chapter 7, verse 28, it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. That's a really strong, weighty uh, Greek word, amazed. It means thunderstruck. That is an ACDC song. Put that out of your mind. This is a word from the lips of Jesus that describes the attitude of the people who heard and who understood what Jesus had said. And then they compared and contrasted it, verse 28 and into 29, with the teachers of their own day, and it was like nothing they'd ever heard before. It was so weighty, it was so authoritative. That's the test that you can give yourself to if you understand the lips, the words from the lips of Jesus, the weightiness, the importance, the snake-like awe-inspiring words of the Sermon on the Mount that no one can pass, that everybody should feel inadequate before. That's the test. If you're not astonished, if you're not amazed, if you're not, who could live such a life like this, then can I say to you, I wonder if you've ever listened truly to the words of Jesus. That's uh, the danger that Jesus wants to point us to as we look to the end of this passage. There is a danger in listening to the Sermon on the Mount that each of these word pictures presents to us. That's my first point, the danger that Jesus is saying. Did you notice all the twos that we heard? There are always twos. There are two gates and there are two roads. That's down in verses 13 to 14. There are two trees and two lots of fruit. There are two houses based on two different sorts of foundations. There's lots of twos, and Jesus is painting a picture in four or five different ways 
communicating, connoting one message. The whole of the Sermon on the Mount has done that. It's not just at the end that Jesus is thinking, oh, what do I say? Let's just paint a few pictures. Jesus is not doing that at all. The message of the whole Sermon on the Mount is saying that there are two ways of spiritually approaching God. There are two ways of spirituality, two ways of coming before him. And it's actually not very easy to discern which one is in your heart. Jesus is not talking about things that are out there, practices that you do and say and think. He's talking about hard approaches to him. It's hard to discern. Think about the trees. Think about the trees and fruit of verses 15 down to verse 20. If you go in the middle of June to an orchard and you say there's a, a tree full of apples on it and there's one that's dead, it's pretty easy to say one is alive, one is dead. That's not what Jesus is talking about. That takes very little, if any, discernment. Jesus is saying, verse 16 and then to verse 18, he's talking about people that takes a lot of wisdom and discernment. Verse 16, by their fruit you will recognise them. He's not talking about trees, he's using the image of trees to talk about people. Verse 18, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. That word bad is the word for poison. So there are two trees, not the ones alive and one's dead. There are two, two trees. Both of them got a bucket load of uh, fruit on them. But one of the fruit leads to life. One of the fruit is poisonous and leads to death. That's the image. And that you need lots of discernment. The two trees look the same. The two houses look the same, by the way. Did you notice that at the end? A wise man and a foolish man, but they're both building homes for themselves. But the point is from the fruit and the point is from the trees, from the outside, you can't see what's going on on the inside. You can't see the foundation when you go and buy a house. You need someone to come and do some digging for you or a structure engineer to give you some advice. You need discernment. These paths that are described at the beginning, verses 13 and 14, through the gates. Aha, I know what this is about. I've read the Sermon on the Mount. I've heard it explained. One path is for good people. One path is for bad people. But that's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's not talking about good and bad people. In uh, chapter 5, you might want to prove your point and say, in chapter 5 it says about loving your neighbour. In chapter 6 it says about giving to the poor. Good people give to the poor and love their neighbour. Bad people don't. That's not what Jesus has said. He's not talking about good and bad people in the slightest. He's not talking about externals, actually. He's aiming for our hearts from the beginning of the Sermon of Mount right to the end. He's talking not about externals, he's talking about internals. It's a diagnostic. Look at verse 15. Two bad trees with different fruit on them. And then he says, verse 15, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. See, that's the outside, but look at the inward. But inwardly they're ferocious wolves. That's a comment about motives. These are prophets, these aren't skeptics, these aren't atheists. These are people who say they're speaking on behalf of the Lord Jesus. They're speaking on behalf of God. They're, they are virtuous people. They look right on the outside. But look at verse 21, another example about internal and external. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles. Who are these people? These are orthodox people. These are virtuous people. These are people who know their Bibles. These are people who are addressing God properly. Lord. They're orthodox. They know their Bibles. 
But it's not just head knowledge. That's not enough, verse 21. Here's someone that approaches God in an intimate, personal way, in an emotional way. You get that from the repetition of Lord, Lord. It's the right term to use. But when you see repetition, it's to do with closeness and emotion. So Jesus himself says, Martha, Martha. It's repetition to show a relationship and closeness. My God, my God. The words of dereliction from the cross. It shows a closeness of relationship. There's intensity. Here's a person from verses 21 and 22 that says, I've taught the Bible. I've been involved neck deep in ministry. I know who you are. I know some of what the Bible says. They're deeply involved in church life. And then Jesus says, verse 23, I never knew you. It's not I uh, I used to know you. It's not I knew you some time back. It's not that you used to be a Christian. Now you're not. Jesus says these teeth-chattering words, I never knew you. There's never been a spiritual connection between you and I. There's never been a real relationship of heart between you and I. You're starting to figure out what Jesus is going for. He's going for our hearts. And Jesus always contrasts two groups of people. It's there just on the slide before this one. There's that quote. The contrast is not between good and bad. The contrast is between religious people and Christians. That's the contrast, and that's the challenge of the Sermon on the Mount. Both groups of people can do the same things with completely different heart motivations. Both groups of people can give money to the poor. Both groups of people can pray. Both people, uh, groups of people can obey God, but for two completely different reasons. On the outside, they look like trees. They're bearing fruit. On the outside, they are uh, sheep-like. On the outside, they are giving. But Jesus says to some groups of people, people who are religious, people who are doing things for the wrong motives, I never knew you. Depart from me, away from me. Very, very scary words from the lips of Jesus. But look at the religious person, just for for recap. Go back to chapter 6, verse 2. Here you see a religious person giving money. Do you remember this? We looked at a long time ago. Why do religious people help the poor? Why do they give their money? Chapter 6, verse 2 says, Religious people, if you're motivated not by the gospel, not by Jesus, but by another reason, they do it to get honour from men. Men and women give money publicly because they want honour, not from God, but from men. They want a pat on the back in the here and now. They want their reward now, not from God, but from others. The word there for honour is glory. They want their glory right now. They want to feel good about themselves. They want to feel approved now from others. That's why they give to the poor. They're they're not feeling worth. They're not feeling weighty. They're not feeling lasting or important. They're not feeling an enoughness in their hearts. There's an emptiness in their spirit. And so how do they fill it? Not from God, but from others. How do they do that? I'm going to give money to the poor. Other people will see how great I am. And then I'm going to get a boost. I'm going to get glory from others. All of us do that in certain ways if we're not Christians. All of us are looking for a sense of permanence, a sense of enoughness and approval from other people. Something to fill the void. And it's an incredible emptiness that will always remain there until we understand the gospel at a deep way. That's just through giving. What about through prayer? Chapter 6, verse 7, just a few sentences down. That's how religious people 
give. Now, how do religious people pray? Chapter 6, verse 7, they think they will be heard for their intense babbling or their many words. It's the same thing. Religion is a power play. In religion, you think by your works, you can twist God's head. You can twist God's arm so that he does what you want him to do. Because I'm living this life, because I'm behaving this way, because I'm going to this place, because I'm serving in this ministry, because I know the right things, you should do this for me. That's a religious way of approaching God, and it is so, so wearying. Actually, if you're a religious person here this morning, or if you know a religious person, they are weary because you never know if you've done enough. You never know if you've prayed the right thing. You never know if God and your projection of God will come through to you. You never know. You're so weary if you're a religious person because you're trying to rescue yourself. You're trying to think that if you work hard enough, if you give enough, if you pray enough, then your record will be good enough so that you can say to God, look at what I've done for you, but actually you're doing it for yourself. It's the heart of a religious person. Something that you're doing and a way that you're behaving and a place that you're going to deal with this, this longing in your heart, this void that a religious person in chapter 6 verse 2 and chapter 6 verse 7 is trying to fill. They're looking for their reward, their glory now. I, I need an inner glory. I need an inner assurance. And I can get it now by behaving in a certain way. So you move out to do ministry saying, actually, this is for you, God, but actually it's for yourself. It's self-serving. I want people to notice that I put the chairs out because I want my glory now. You can do the same thing with two completely different motivations. When you become a Christian, here's the contrast about how you give and pray. Rather than ministry and service and prayer and giving being about yourself and your own record and reputation, when you become a Christian, it becomes about him. You receive the glory of the gospel. You receive salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone. You have a new identity on the inside, a revolution within that permeates to everything. You can do the same things. You put the chairs out, but it does not matter if someone sees you or not. You can serve. If, this pe if people here knew how much time I gave, says someone, no one recognizes me. It doesn't matter because there's an audience of one who does. How does ministry become about him and not you? How do I do that? The people who heard Jesus' words were astonished, chapter 7, verse 28, because the authority of Jesus, the summary of the whole Sermon of the Mount, this astonishment. But be aware of the dangers as we come to the end of the Sermon of the Mount. Who are you worshipping for? Who are you setting out chairs for? Who are you praying for? Who are you giving and for what reason? Two different ways of doing exactly the same thing. That was the long point. There are two shorter ones. Rest at ease. Here's another thing. The center. There's the danger at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and there's the center. There's a, a picture from space. I do love a picture from space. I think NASA do a great job of sharing it. Look at the, uh, the center of what Jesus is saying in verses 21 to 23 at the end of chapter 7. He's summing up. He's drawing the threads of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, be wary of the dangers, all the twos, two foundations and so on. And now he talks about the center. Jesus Christ must be the center and places himself in the center in these sentences. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day. 
Jesus is not talking about the past. He's not talking about how you live your life after this internal revolution. He's focusing purely on the future. And notice what is happening and what he's talking about. He's talking about the future and judgment day when Jesus Christ is the self-appointed king and ruler and judge of the whole world and he's at the very center of history. Notice that from 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, on that day, what's that day? It's judgment day. There's someone who comes before Jesus and said, I did everything for you. I did everything in your, uh, in your name under your authority. I centered my life on you. I gave my diary to you. I gave my priorities to you. And Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? They're Bible teachers. And in your name, drive out demons and perform many miracles. They're doing stuff in church life. That's the equivalent, I believe. My, my whole life was revolved around you. I did this for you. And Jesus said, no, no, no. You were doing it for yourself. Look at, the, look at the record that they present Jesus with. Did we not? They're before Jesus, the judge of heaven and earth. And uh, Jesus says, I never knew you because your record was for yourself. Did we not do this for you? And Jesus says, no, you were doing it for yourself. I prophesied in your name. I taught. I tried to lift up you, your name for other people. I was telling stories to little children or to adults about you for, for decades. And Jesus says, I never knew you were doing that for yourself. It wasn't for my glory, it was to fill that void in your heart. You never knew me at all. These are some of the scariest words of Jesus in the whole of the New Testament. What you were doing was for you, it wasn't for me. You were at the centre, not me. I need to be at the centre, not you. Everything was about you, says Jesus. And so Jesus must always be the centre of our lives. If you want to move from being a religious person to being someone who's a Christian, if you want to move from a religious understanding of who God is to a deep understanding of the gospel, you need to see it's all about him. And you need to see that all the good things you do are not meritorious to God. Jesus does not just save you from your bad past. He doesn't just give you a fresh start. It's not as if all of that record is wiped out, which it is, and now all the good things you do, that will gain merit. No, no, no. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. You need to lay down all your bad deeds, so to speak, and you lay down all your good works as well. Jesus is saying, anyone who comes to me and says, look at me, I did this for you, therefore you should do what I want. This gives me extra credit for you in terms of salvation. That will never work, says Jesus. Get away from me. Jesus is not a false teacher. The false teachers were those who were sheep in wolves' clothing or wolves in sheep's clothing. But Jesus is the ultimate shepherd. He's a sheep through and through. There's no cloak of uh, uh, religiosity with him. There's no cloak of uh, a spirit that would have your um, attitude and heart in a hard way. He was the lamb who was slain. He's not someone who wounds you. He's someone that comes after you to heal you. When you grasp that, when you see his purity, when you see he was the shepherd who was also the sheep who was slain for the sins of the world, that does something to you internally so that you do get some of that glory that you long for in any other thing. You don't have to work to get it. You receive it by grace. You don't um, have so many questions about your assurance anymore or the approval that you long for in every other relationship. God gives it to you by grace. Father, accept me for what Jesus has done. I'm accepted because of his record, not my own. I will be 
who you want me to be. To the degree I understand your glory. There's a deep connection with understanding the gospel and your motivation for service. You can be extremely busy for Jesus. You can be extremely busy for Jesus and not know who he is. And the whole of the Sermon on the Mount boils down to this. How do you approach Jesus? Is it with your record or is it with his record? How do you come before God? How do you pray and give and worship and treat others? Is it motivated by your new identity in Christ? Or are you actually trying to twist God's arm in some way? And the reason I understand this is because I did it for many years. Operated thinking that God should owe me because of what I did with youth work. And if you operate in that way, you will always be anxious and weary. You'll also always be angry, thinking that God should come through and do what I say he should do, rather than what his sovereign chooses, because he's our Father in heaven. It's a great danger in operating towards God in a religious way, rather than the gospel. It's a great danger if you're the center of ministry and work, rather than Jesus and the gospel. And finally, Jesus speaks at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, not of a danger or the center, but of a treasure. It's like a doorway. I think he speaks of treasure. Look at uh, this astonishing thing in verse 23 again. What does Jesus say to someone who's been working for themselves all their life rather than working for him and with his motivation in their heart? Does Jesus say, kapow, fire and brimstone for you? Look at what he says, verse 23. Jesus says, depart from me. Depart from me. The only real punishment is for you to lose me. There is a reality of heaven and there's a reality of hell. Both are eternal. Jesus' words are so weighty, depart from me. It's eternal separation from our maker and lover and friend. This love that we long for in every kiss, we can search for it and in every pretty face that we've run after or will run after, every embrace, all the beauty we long for in every piece of music we listen to and every piece of art we see at the Louvre or anywhere else. The peace and the love and security we long for in our whole life can be found only here. And Jesus says, if you don't know me as the source of joy and beauty and love and hope and security, you'll find it nowhere else. This is a, the ultimate nightmare, banishment from the source of everything we long for. Whether you know it or not, all of us are after Jesus. All of us are after and need to find the Jesus and the hope that he has. Do whatever it takes to get him. He's the pearl of greatest price, Matthew says. Do whatever it takes to center your life on him. Do whatever it takes. Stop whatever you're doing so that you can get him. He's the ultimate prize. He's altogether precious and altogether lovely. And he gives us rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's, there's rest in no other source, no other location. Here we are, we're four years old as a church, and some of us may be getting pretty weary because we're doing the same things for four long years, and we're waiting for someone else to come and pick up the baton. Have you forgotten Jesus, or are you still pursuing him? Does his glory still motivate you in doing what you do? in trying to tell the friends that you would long to see next to you this morning? Are you still pursuing Jesus? Is that the core motivation of your heart? Have you gotten too busy in ministry? That's possible. 
It's very easy to not get busy in ministry at all. That's another danger. But equally, if you're too busy so that you forget Jesus, that's equally a danger that we can grasp. Jesus says, if you have gotten very busy with ministry, the danger is you can forget him. The danger is that you could have started ministry and not had a personal relationship with him. The worst thing you could ever hear is, I never knew you, depart from me. And some of you may be thinking, well, golly, if you knew what I'd done this week in my life, there's no way I could be in this narrow path. There's no way I could listen to the words from Jesus' lips and build my life on the solid rock of the gospel. There's no reason that I would have discernment to see who is a false teacher and who's not. But this is Jesus who says, the prostitutes and the tax collectors get into heaven way ahead of the religious person. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far away you feel. It does matter what Jesus says. And because of Jesus, you are far, far nearer than you think. There are all these dangers. How do you approach Jesus? Is he at the center of your life, your motivational core, your your mental CPU? Is it Jesus and the gospel that motivates you? He's the greatest treasure. If you don't know who he is, seek him with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And if you know him, why don't you rejoice in the gospel afresh this morning? Let's pray.